Let's pray. Jesus, tonight, come and give us your Holy Spirit to teach us. Lord, as we consider the battle that we face when we want to live for you in a world that's under siege of the evil one, would you give us encouragement, instruction, and power tonight, we pray in your name. Amen. So last night I feel like we kind of scaled the top of the mountain. We've looked at a relational theology and how to operate relationally in our lives to God, not just in relationship to becoming saved, justification, forgiveness, but in staying saved, living saved, obedience, sanctification, transformation. Um, The best I know how to do, we concluded last night in that full picture. Now what we want to do is talk about some of the issues that we face from that perspective, from a relational theology. So tonight, we want to talk about the battle. What is the toughest battle that you have faced as a Christian? I'm not asking for verbal responses, but I want you to think about that. What is the biggest battle you've had? Make a mental note. We'll come back to it. Let's start with this verse. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's interesting, that sentence uses three different words for strength or power from the original language. Be strong in the Lord with the ability of his power would be a way to translate it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles in the Greek is methodia. The methods. Boy, has he got methods, doesn't he? Every time you think you got one figured out, he comes up with another one. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. That last verse is so that you can not only stand through the battle, but when the battle's over, you're still standing. Have you ever stood through the battle, but the end been so fatigued the devil took you out then? An author that I really appreciate that's helped me with a lot of material for men's ministry said he flew from Colorado, where he lives, to uh, the British Isles, to the UK, to do a weekend uh, men's retreat. And he knew it was going to be a lot of battle. There's a lot of men struggling with pornography and and other issues, and they take that head on. So there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on. And he said at the end of the full weekend, you know, Friday night, all day Saturday, and into Sunday morning, Sunday night he settles into his seat in the airplane. He's tired. There have been great victories. It's been a powerful weekend. He's in a middle seat. He settles into his seat. And immediately, the men on each side pull out a pornographic magazine. (laughs) You talk about the devil trying to take you out when you're tired, right? He said he just prayed silently to God. And he said within a minute or two, they both closed them and put them away. And that was it for the flight. But that's what the devil often does, is when we've won the battle and we're going, yes, we made it, but boy, am I tired He has a knockout punch. So not only stand through the battle, but at the end still be standing strong. Standing strong. We live in the middle of a very real battle, even though we cannot see it most of the time with our eyes. A slogan that I've come to believe in very much is, there is always more going on than meets the eye. It's never just what you can see. When there's a conflict in the church, when there's a conflict at home, when there's a conflict with with a friend, when anything like that comes up, it's not just you and that other person. There's always supernatural agencies in there trying to mess things up. I believe there's always more going on than meets the eye. In this war, we cannot remain neutral. We must choose a side, like world wars. In world wars, little countries who don't want anything to do with the war have to choose one side or the other, or both sides will run over them. 
somebody walking down no man's land between the trenches without a uniform, both sides are going to shoot at him, right? Our fallen world is a battlefield of the greatest conflict this universe has ever seen. And the earth is the theater where all of this is being fought out in a grand struggle between good and evil, between heaven and hell. And every one of us has a part to play in the conflict, and none of us can stand on neutral ground. There is no middle ground. I know what we would like. You know, we look at it this way. There's the S team. That's Satan. I don't want to be over there, right? And there's the J team. That's Jesus. Well, yeah, okay. But what I'd really like is the M team, me. I just want to be in charge of my life. You know, especially the young people who don't know better yet. I, I just, why can't I just be in charge of my life? Why do I have to go under one power or the other? Well, a couple of points on that. Both the S team and the M team are disconnected from Jesus. Right? Who is life? Jesus is life. So um, if you're on the S team or the M team, you're still going to end up just as dead because Jesus is life. Right? But in reality, there is no M team. There's no me team. God is love. He respects and protects our freedom, and he only enters and takes control where he's invited. Satan is power and control. He hates and rejects freedom. He invades and takes control unless prevented, which means unless you choose to join the J team of your own free will, the S team will force an irresistible hostile takeover. The N team will automatically be sucked into the S team. Isn't that right? There is no middle ground. Satan is exponentially more powerful than I am. So, my only hope is to ally with one who is infinitely more powerful than he is. Did you get that? Satan is exponentially more powerful than I am. He seems to be almost infinitely powerful compared to me. So my only hope of not having a hostile takeover is to put myself under the one who is truly infinitely more powerful than his exponential power. Does that make sense? You have to choose sides. And the sooner you choose, the better. Some of you know that. You know, I chose to follow Jesus when I was just a kid, 10 years old or so. Um, and I kept choosing it all along. I never wandered far. I'm one of those good kids. Then there's your pastor. I haven't heard the story, but he did a bit of wandering, it seems, you know. And I, I know both kinds. And, you know, nobody has told me, I'm glad I went through those wild years. No, that's not a benefit. That's not a help. You don't gain anything. Now, God will use it later on because he'll use anything. But he, that was never his design. The sooner we get on the J team, the better off our lives are going to be. Amen? So if you're not there, get there now. No better time than the present. It's kind of like I remember uh, a number of years ago, my sister, she is a great boat captain. She has done some uh, boating down in the British Virgin Islands where she would rent a 48-foot power yacht for a week. And she's good enough at it, they'd let her take it out alone. So she asked me to go with her one time. Now, I'm not a good boat captain at all. She seems to have the touch. She can get around whatever she needs to with this huge, heavy boat. You can't just put on the brakes, right? It just keeps floating. So she handled the yacht. I handled the lines. Now, this yacht weighs tons and tons. It's very heavy. So I'm on the dock, and my job is to push the thing off. Well, you don't just push, and there it goes. You lean into it. And it very slowly starts to move. And then you have a decision to make. Am I going to stay on the dock or am I going to get on the boat? And the longer you wait, the more horizontal you become. Until you're either going in the drink or you're going to grab on and crack your ribs against the side of the boat, right? The sooner you make the decision, the better. Once that momentum gets going... You have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. There is no middle ground. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one or love the other. He'll be loyal to the one or despise the other. Jesus said he who is not with me is against me. He who doesn't gather with me scatters. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. You're with him or you're against him. 
we must inevitably be under the control of one or the other of the two great powers that are contending for the supremacy of the world. It's not necessary for us to deliberately choose the service of the kingdom of darkness in order to come under its dominion. We have only to neglect to ally ourselves with the kingdom of light. If we do not cooperate with the heavenly agencies, Satan will take possession of the heart and make it his abiding place. That's the bottom line. No middle ground, only two sides. If I don't choose, I've chosen. If I choose me, I've chosen. Because Satan will take over. The only safety is to deliberately put yourself on the J team. And Jesus has a spot for you on his team just waiting. The battle is real. The territory of the war is the human heart. And if we neglect to pursue a personal relationship with Jesus, we will by default end up on the devil's side. Do we really believe this battle is real? So often, so often when we're in difficulty, we act like it's just us and we can solve it. But there's always more going on than meets the eye. A couple of paintings by a guy named Ron Disiani. This one, the mother is praying over her sleeping daughter. But if you'll notice against the back wall, there are two dark figures, and those are representing angels with swords standing guard. Not on my watch. When our parents pray for us, angels come to protect. He did a similar one with a father praying for his son. In this case, the angels are up in the top window, and you see a white angel first, and then behind it you see the dark angels, as if the white angel is saying, not on my watch. This one is being prayed for. Just an attempt by an artist to say the battle is real. And sometimes, although I know we mouth that we believe it's real, we act like it's not really that real. We act like every day isn't a deadly, serious battle. There are two stories in the Bible I want to use here. The first one, the king of Syria was making war against Israel. He consulted with his servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. So the king of Syria decided to place his camp in a secret location. He only told his top aides and he was hoping to ambush the king of Israel. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, that man of God happened to be Elisha, sent to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this certain place for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to that place of which the man of God had told him and he warned him. And he was watchful and not just once or twice. So deciphering this story, the king of Syria several times tried to set up a secret ambush and every time the king of Israel heard about it. So what would you think if you were the king of Syria? I must have a spy in the camp. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing and he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? Who is the double agent? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is at that I may send and get him. We've got to take Elisha out. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Now remember, Dothan was a little town. So he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So what happens here is you have a little town that wakes up with a great army. They don't even have a prayer at surviving this great army. When the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what will we do? He throws his hands up in fear. So Elisha answered, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Was that true? It sure didn't look like it. You're going to have to believe there's more going on than meets the eye. So Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wow. 
God pulls back the curtain and lets this servant of Elisha see what's going on that he can't normally see. There's more going on that meets the eye. And it's not just more going on bad that meets the eye. There's an even infinitely greater power doing stuff that we can't see behind the scenes as well. You know, there's a spot in the book of uh, Gospel of John 16 where it says the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're going to talk about that at least twice more before we're done here. But the third one of judgment It doesn't say because you're going to stand in judgment. It says because the prince of this world has been judged. You know what that tells me? No matter how bad things look, Jesus tells me the outcome has already been decided. And even if I die in the battle, we're going to win the battle, and he's the resurrection. The prince of this world has already been judged. He may be frightening us, attempting to surround us and take us out. But he's already been judged. There's more going on than meets the eye. And we have a God with chariots of fire that is going to protect us. Even if we lose our lives, he will protect us. Isn't that right? The other story. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now that is three weeks of serious prayer, right? This isn't casual. This isn't because he has a hangnail, all right? This is because something major is going on. Just to give you a little clue, based on the history and the times, it appears that a couple years before, the Jews had returned after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Several tens of thousands had returned to Israel. They had laid the foundation of the temple. The Samaritans had come down and wanted to get involved. The Jews had said, no, we don't want you involved. And the Samaritans had actually, in our lingo, had filed suit for restraining orders in the courts of Medo-Persia. And they had succeeded in getting the work stopped. And it appears this is probably what Daniel is praying about. He's in three weeks of serious prayer. God, come on. Remember in Daniel 9, he's in major prayer for God to go ahead. You know, there are 68 years into the 70 years when you get to Daniel 9. And he's praying, come on, Lord, don't delay. Let's get with it. You promised to take us back in 70. Now in the next chapter, they've returned, but the work's been stopped. And he's praying. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, gleaming bronze. His face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. That's one awesome-looking person, right? By the way, if you go to Revelation chapter 1 and read the vision that John sees of Jesus, our high priest, it's exactly the same. It's interesting. Daniel's last vision is this, is of Jesus. And it fits directly with John's first vision. So these two books go like this, okay? But that's not our point tonight. He sees this incredible being. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell on them, and they fled to hide themselves. Every time Jesus shows up, those who are not on his team run and hide, right? Therefore, I was left alone. When I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me, my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength, but I heard the sound of his words. And while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. So this incredible being shows up to speak to him and everybody runs away and Daniel faints. Suddenly a hand touched me and made me tremble on my knees and the palms of my hand. So somebody nudges him and says, come on, Daniel, we're trying to talk to you. Get up. He said to me, Daniel, O man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you. Stand upright, for I've been sent to you. Stop sleeping on the ground. Get up. I want to talk to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And he said to me, Oh, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Now, wait a minute. This being says, you were heard on the first day. This is three weeks later. 
What happened? The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. This is actually very difficult Hebrew to translate. It's very difficult to figure out exactly what's going on. Is that prince of the kingdom of Persia the literal king, or is it some supernatural evil power behind the literal king? We can't be absolutely sure. We can't even know exactly what's going on here. But it seems one thing is clear. Somehow, in the supernatural realms, even when God wanted to break through to Daniel, there were forces in the way that evidently, given the rules of engagement that God has in this great controversy, he couldn't just blast through. There's some kind of battle out there that's as real as any battle on earth. And it's not just a bunch of words. Now move over. No, I'm not moving over. You know, there seems to be some kind of supernatural interactive forcing going on here. And God doesn't just force his way through, but eventually he'll get through. But there's real battle going on. That's all I want you to get out of this passage, even though we can't exactly detail what the battle is. Could our eyes be open and could each see the conflict of angelic agencies with the satanic confederacy who are combined with evil human agencies, what astonishment would come upon the soul. We would see that which would never be effaced from the memory as long as life should last. Have you had somebody come home from war who couldn't talk about it? My mom buried my father after 42 years of marriage, I believe it was. And then a couple years later, she married another nice gentleman, and he died two and a half years later. And then about two years later, she married Fred. Now, Fred had never been married before. He was 70, and she was 74. I performed the wedding. I said, you're both in overtime, according to King David. Go for it. And Mom said that was the best one yet. We all knew she and Dad never got along. But Mom and Fred were together 10 years, and they were soulmates. Fred was raised in Germany. His parents left Germany when Hitler came to power and moved to Amsterdam because they feared what was going on in Germany. But unfortunately, they were in Amsterdam when Hitler blasted through the Low Countries into France. And Fred spent four years, about ages, I think, 8 to 12, in Amsterdam under the heel of Hitler's troops. And he saw his friends shot down off the rooftops who were trying to go against the Nazis. I'm kind of a World War II nut. I've read tons of books on it, um, read everything uh, Winston Churchill wrote on it. So I want to talk about this stuff. We couldn't be 30 seconds in and Fred's in tears. And this is 50 years later. There are scenes in his mind that never are effaced as long as life lasts. We would see souls bowed down under oppression, loaded with grief and pressed. We would see angels flying swiftly to aid the tempted ones, forcing back the evil angels. This isn't just words. This is battle and guiding the souls away from dangerous places. We should see battles going on between the two armies as real as those fought by opposing forces on earth. I don't know how that works because I know God in a thought could remove them from the universe. But that's not how he functions. There's a battle going on, and we are stuck right in the middle of it. It's real. That's why we're told to fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Not the bad fight of behavior, but the good fight of faith. It's all about coming back into trust for the one who is infinitely powerful than the one who is after us. It's a fight. Don't overlook that. We're talking relational theology here, but it's not a do-nothing religion, just love Jesus and keep on sinning. It's the only way to ever overcome sinning is through the battle of faith. This isn't soft on obedience. Obedience is so important to God that he doesn't leave obedience to us. He says, you seek relationship with me. Reverse the decision at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Come back into relationship with me. I will transform your heart and bring you into obedience. It's simple, but it's not easy. Wage the good warfare. 
This is not do-nothing religion. This is a fight, but the fight is the fight of faith. And what do we work on? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? This is the work God wants us to work on that we trust, believe. That's the fight of faith. That's waging the good warfare. I just want to make it very clear, folks, there is a work. There is a warfare. There is a fight. But we must fight the battle where the battle is and not where the battle isn't. We work on trust. We fight the fight of trust. That's where the warfare is. We get to know him. He can transform us. My cousin Lou Venden, that would be the older brother of Morris Venden. He was pastor at the Loma Linda University Church for a number of years back in the 80s. Um, he is still alive, by the way, um, but he's in some uh, memory care now, uh, nearing the end of his life. But he taught at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary for nine years, from about 68 to 77. And he taught a class to every single seminary student. Who are the seminary students? The next crop of pastors, right? He taught a class to every one of those for those nine years. Everyone had to go through his class. And when he started that class, he started with a two-question quiz. Don't put your name on it. Just be honest. Question one, describe what I need to do in order to have a meaningful devotional life. He would give them ample time, most of the class period, and near the end of the class period, when they were done writing, he would say, now question number two. Tell me how well you're doing at applying what you just described. After nine years, he went through his files and he read the answers to question number one. Describe what I need to do in order to have a meaningful devotional life. He said, there was beautiful writing about a quiet time every day, getting up early if necessary, inviting God to wake us up. Praying before, journaling, protection from distraction, Holy Spirit eyesight, going to the Gospels, meeting the man in Scripture. There was all the good stuff about it. Then he got to question two. Tell me how well you're doing at applying what you just described. And he began to separate them into two piles. Pile number one, by God's grace, it's a daily priority that drives me. I find time every day and I hope to always do it. That is my priority. Pile number two, at the present time, I'm just too swamped. I know I need to. I intend to. I must have this kind of daily connection with God, but there's just not time in my hectic school schedule. When I get out of school and have more time, I plan to do that. By the way, how many of you got out of school and found you had more time? <laughs> that was a fallacy. And unfortunately, he discovered that when he made the two piles, there were five responses in the, I want to, I don't have time, but I'm going to when I have the time. There were five responses for every one that said, by God's grace, no matter what, that's what I do. And those are the new pastors. That's the greatest battle of everyone, I believe. You know, I asked you what your greatest battle was. I believe you'll discover if you decide to seek a relationship daily with Jesus, to spend time with him daily, you will find that's the biggest battle you ever take on. That will eclipse any battle against any sin you've ever tried to overcome. Because Satan knows if you get serious about that, he's licked. In fact, you get together with pastors at pastor's gatherings. And if we are honest with each other and say, what would you like you know, to be prayed for about, generally almost all of us say something like, pray that I'll stop being so busy doing the Lord's work that I'll have time for the Lord of the work. I'm going a mile a minute working for God. I don't have time for him. Pray that I'll quit spending all my time with Martha in the kitchen and join Mary at Jesus' feet. You know, we have all our ways of saying it that sound very, very biblical. Pray that I'll quit substituting sermon preparation time for personal devotional time. Oh, that's the big pastor's issue. We're studying the Bible, aren't we? And face it, spending time preparing the sermon is spiritually growing for us. 
But two points here. Number one, you can cook in the kitchen all day, but if you don't stop to eat for yourself, you'll die of starvation. Secondly, if we expect you, our parishioners, to take time in your busy schedule day by day, when you can't multitask, I don't think it's fair for us to say, well, we get to multitask. If I can't find time for Jesus in addition to my job, how would I expect you to find time? So just being fair here, the, the pastors have as big a battle as anybody else. And that is to take time for our time with Jesus, not our preparation time to talk to you about Jesus. I love this Gary Larson Farside cartoon. This poor deer was born with a target on his chest. Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. Yeah, well, let me tell you something. When you decide to start taking time daily with Jesus, you are putting a target on your chest. And Satan will take aim. My grandma used to say, cheer up, things could be worse. So I cheered up, and sure enough, things got worse. Why is it when I start seeking Jesus, things get worse? Because if you were the devil, that's exactly what you'd do too. The devil knows if we succeed at seeking Jesus, he will lose. The devil knows if we're working on our sins, he can give us just enough success to keep us thinking we're doing okay and he can take us out anytime he wants to. But he knows when we're working on seeking Jesus, he's licked. And he will oppose you like you've never been opposed before. You're putting a target on your chest. So what are Satan's weapons that he uses to attack us? Number one, busyness. What I'm going to present now is not rocket science. It's so simple, but it's so true. Busyness. Someone has said busyness is buried under Satan's yoke. He who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. The thorny ground, there's just too much going on either in busyness or distractedness and we don't put down good roots and we get taken out. Be still and know that I am God. I suggest that we need to be still in his presence and know him deeply. Notice these quotations. It has ever been the tempter's determined purpose to eclipse Jesus from the view. It is Satan's constant effort to keep the attention diverted from the Savior and thus prevent the union and communion of the soul with Christ. Satan has laid subtle plans by which to destroy man. It is his purpose to hide Jesus from our view. Do you get a repetition here? Evil angels crowded around, pressing darkness upon them to shut out Jesus from their view. Their only safety was to keep their eyes directed upward. I love that one. You see, God may actually let Satan put a wall all the way around you, but he'll never let him put the roof on. If you look up, you'll always be able to see the uplifted Savior. Right? You will often find yourself completely surrounded it's hopeless, it looks like, unless you look up. Satan cannot absolutely block the view, but he can build some pretty high walls. Satan will seek to discourage the followers of Christ so that they may not pray or study the scriptures, and he will throw his hateful shadow athwart the path to hide Jesus from view. He puts his shadow across in hopes you won't be able to to lift up your eyes and see Jesus. The battle rages. The enemy gets double serious whenever he sees us seriously seeking to know Jesus. And he tries to take us out with busyness, and often that busyness just keeps us from having the time to sit and lift our eyes above the walls he puts around us and keep our eyes on the uplifted Savior. If he can keep us too busy, you know, people... Say to me, Pastor, you're just so busy. You know, I, I don't want to bother you, you're so busy. 
I hate that. I know it's true, but I don't want it to be true. I really don't want my people to think that my primary thing in life is being busy. I don't know how to fix that yet, but I'd like to change that. I'd like people to see something different. Number two, a strange stupor. Have you ever gotten up and tried to read your Bible and a strange stupor comes over? A couple of stories. At the Transfiguration, eight days after these sayings, Jesus took Peter, John, and James, went up on the mountain to pray, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming, and two men were talking with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and were speaking of him of his departure. The word departure there in the Greek is exodus. His exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. And when they were fully awake, because of that glory, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's really good for us to be here. Let's build three shrines, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. We've got to commemorate this moment, right? Memorialize it. Let's build some little monuments here so we can bring people up and say, look, this is where it happened right here. Moses was there and Elijah was there. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then the voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Why did Jesus take Peter, James, and John up on that mountain? He wanted to give them something that would help them get through the awful weekend that was just around the corner. Something that when Jesus was dead, they could actually give some hope to the other disciples instead of them all being hopeless. But they slept through most of it and they missed the blessing. A strange stupor. They were overcome with sleep. Have you ever been overcome with sleep while you try to read your Bible? The other story, same thing in Gethsemane, the same guys. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Then he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. I believe this is the point where God laid on Jesus the sin of us all, and he would have died there in the garden if he hadn't been strengthened to go through. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, the one who said, I'll never, ever forsake you. What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, strange stupor. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, my betrayer is at hand. They did not intend to forsake their Lord, but they seemed paralyzed by a stupor which they might have shaken off if they had continued pleading with God. Have you ever been hit with that strange stupor? Jesus comes to you in the morning. He wakes you up, but the bed is warm and the pillow is soft. Just a few more Zs, and when you wake up the next time, there's no time left for him. You get up, you open the gospel, and three verses in your eyes glaze over your head, nods, and you're asleep. But it says the disciples could have shaken it off. You know, I generally don't want to shake it off. The sleep feels pretty good, right? But what's more important, right? We have to make a decision here. This is my big one. I've told you, you know, if I can't sleep, just decide I'm going to pray for an hour. I'll be asleep in five minutes. Lee, my cousin, got up one Sunday morning and started reading the Gospel of John and fell asleep. When he woke up, he picked up the Sunday Seattle paper that was sitting there and read the entire A section with no problem. 
He went, said, I'm awake now, went back to the Gospel of John. Three verses later, he fell asleep. When he woke up, he read the B section without being drowsy. said, now I'm awake. He was also somewhat beginning to catch on to what was going on. Started reading the Gospel of John again, and out he went. When he woke up, he said he read the classifieds all the way through. And that didn't put him to sleep. Went back to John and fell asleep. Strange stupor. There's a conspiracy. You can read anything but God's Word. You pick up the Bible, Satan will make you sluggish. Isn't that right? Sometimes I'll read walking on the treadmill or riding an exercise just so I don't go to sleep. I need to stay awake. Whatever it takes, you need that time with Jesus. But that strange stupor is not just natural. I believe it's supernatural. We have to persevere through it. When I was 60 years old, that's three years ago, I ran a marathon. I think I was the slowest guy in the field. Took me five hours and 50 minutes. 13 minute and 20 second miles. You can almost shuffle that fast, but I ran the marathon. My goal was to finish before they closed the finish line. And I made it by 10 minutes. Now they say that when you run a marathon, about the 20 mile point, you often hit the wall. Your body's used up all of a certain kind of energy and the muscles say, I'm done. But they say if you push through that, a new type of energy kicks in. The body begins to burn a different type of energy and you get that second wind to finish it up. I have to admit, I ran so slow, I don't think I ever ran out of that energy. I think I was able to put energy in fast enough because I was going so slow. But even in your spiritual life, in your time with Jesus, there are times when you hit that wall of fatigue. But if you'll get up, stand up, you know, uh, take a walk, walk while you're praying. You don't have to be on your knees with your eyes closed. If you can't stay awake, get up and take a walk and talk to God. Amen. Push through. My grandma had an old Volkswagen bus with dual tanks, or a, should I say a reserve tank. You know, it didn't have a, it didn't have a gas gauge. You just drove till it sputtered and you flipped the switch and you had a couple gallons. Sometimes we're taking our time with God and we're going to run out of gas. We've got to flip that switch and go for the reserve tank. Amen. Number three, discouragement over failures. Is it possible to be in a daily walk with Jesus and still be experiencing failures? Yes, yes if we're honest, it's true. Even the disciples, when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. You're all going to wash out. For it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Jesus says, you're all going to wash out, but I'm not done with you. I'll see you later. Peter said, even if all of them stumble, <laughs> not me, I will not. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, now he's talking to Peter. Even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. likewise. Well, so they're all in this thing together. Peter's just the mouth. Going to the Gospel of John, Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for my sake? Assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Are these followers of Jesus going to fail? Yes. yes. After Jesus says, you'll deny me three times, what are his very next words? Do you know? The problem is it's the end of the chapter, so you stop reading and you don't pick it up till the next day and you don't connect it. The very next one is, and don't let it bother you. Keep trusting God, keep trusting me. You guys are all going to wash out and don't let your heart be troubled. Trust God, trust me. It's possible to wash out completely if you're a follower of Jesus, but he's not done with you, so we shouldn't be done with him, right? Let's read that whole verse. 
Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in me. All the yous here are plural. You all. He's talking to all the disciples. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you all. I'm going to prepare a place for you all. And if I go and prepare a place for you all, I will come again and receive you all to myself, that where I am, there you all may be also. Jesus looks at these disciples, says, you're all going to wash out, you're all going to fail me. Peter says, not me. And they say, yep, not us. Jesus says, no, unfortunately, you're all going to fail me. But don't let it get you discouraged. Keep trusting God. Keep trusting me. What's the only thing we can do when we fall and fail? Get up and work on trust. Get up and keep trusting. Not get up and try harder to behave. Get up and work on trust. Jesus says, trust God, trust me. That's the focus. We're all like little children learning to walk. We fall down a few times. And the snake comes along and he says, now you're going to go spend time with Jesus after that fail? After that flop and failure? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Can you now pick up your Bible and pray? Are you shameless? And we say, oh no, Jesus has come. He'll never turn us away. Yeah, but wouldn't you feel bad if somebody was playing fast and loose with your grace like that? You do it again, you do it again, you do it again. Here's what I suggest, says Satan. Don't pray right now. Go a few days. Get a few good days in. Show Jesus you're serious. Then come back to him. What is the core issue of sin? The core issue wasn't your failure. The core issue was a breakdown in trust. Living life apart from Jesus is the core issue. So Satan actually tries to get you to live your life apart from Jesus a little bit longer to show you're serious. He is a liar. Heaven is more disappointed with our staying away than with our misbehavior. Jesus wants us, relationship with us, to stay away because we goofed is so far beneath where I want to be with you, God says. Come home and come now. The next time Satan reminds you of your failures, you remind him of his future. And go right back to Jesus because he'll never, ever turn you away. You don't clean up your life to come back. You come back and he cleans up your life. And the fourth item is focus on overcoming sinful behavior. One of his greatest weapons is to get us back on a behavioral focus with some success. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness of this age, and the spiritual hosts of wickedness. Notice, the battle is not with us. If I'm falling and failing and sinning, the battle is still not about my falling and failing and sinning. The battle is how to deal with Satan because there's always more going on than meets the eye. Satan will actually encourage us to focus on overcoming behavior and give us just enough success to make us think it's working. And then he'll take us out when he wants to. The only way to overcome is to ask Jesus to transform my heart. Relationship with Jesus, that's my fight. God cannot seek himself for me. Only I can seek him in relationship. And I can't change my heart. Only he can do that. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. Again, the problem isn't me. The problem isn't my fleshly behavior. The problem is a trust problem. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, literally, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So what do we fight back with? And again, this is so simple. What are the weapons of our warfare? Number one, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We've been saying it every night, but it's that simple, but it's never easy. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I have to keep my eyes fixed on the uplifted Savior. Once again, Satan can build a wall, but he can't put on the roof. The snake was lifted high on a pole. I can always look up and see Jesus. Jesus will never let himself be fully eclipsed. 
If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's always up there where we can see him if we will take the time to look up. We all with unveiled face beholding us in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Notice the transformation is passive. I work on relationship. Jesus has to transform my heart. We have before us a warfare, a lifelong conflict with Satan and his seductive temptations. As long as we continue to keep our eyes fixed upon the author and finisher of our faith, we shall be safe. By daily contemplating his matchless charms, we must grow more and more into his glorious image. While we thus live in communion with heaven, Satan will lay his nets for us in vain. The battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers, and they're only won by sticking with Jesus. How do we fight back? Number two, stay connected with Jesus. I love this ticket I found online from a, uh, this was before the World Series, but it was the World Championship Games in baseball, 1946. And that ticket cost $6.25. That was an expensive ticket in 1946. But just notice this one line. Not good if detached. <laughs> That's us. We're no good if detached. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. What does it mean to abide? This is the picture of, of grafting. In the vineyard. I've never done a graft. My wife took a class in college and they grafted something, you know, and it involves somehow putting a slit or a cut and matching the new branch and putting them there. And when you first put them on and you tie them there, you bind them tight. Now, what do you do? Leave it there about a week and then pull it apart and see how it's doing? No, no, that won't work. You leave it forever and ever, <laughs> right? Now what happens? Those little capillaries in the new branch initially don't mesh very well with the little capillaries going up and down the parent stock, but enough nutrients get through that it begins to grow together and the branch is kind of sickly for a little while, right? And the leaves kind of begin to wilt, but then things begin to come back as those little capillaries line up and the juices begin to flow. But the whole idea is the graft once made, stays. That's what the word abide means. The word abide means to stick, stay, remain. Jesus said this, the servant doesn't abide in the house, but the son abides forever. What does the servant do? Comes and works and goes home. What does the son do? Lives there. Jesus says abide, stick in me. As the branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Not good if detached. We're only good when attached. Earlier on, after Jesus fed the 5,000 and they wanted another meal, Jesus said, I'm the meal, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they're dead. This is the bread, speaking of himself, which comes down from heaven that one may eat and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, that I will give for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus dug in more. He said, surely I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed, real food and drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, what? Abides in me. That's how you abide, and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus uses a parable. As physical food is to physical life, so spiritual food is to spiritual life. So let's add it up. How often do you need to eat physically? Every day. If you miss a day, are you dead? No. no. If you miss too many days, will you die? If you miss too many days, will you die? Eventually, you'll keel over from lack of food, right? And if you only eat once a week, can you survive? I'm going to say no. You can't put enough calories in at one meal to make it a week. You're just going to 
slowly wind down. Spiritually, by comparison, how often do we need to eat? Every day. If we miss a day, are we dead? No, you're not earning your salvation by clocking an hour with Jesus. It's a relationship. But if you miss too many days, will you die? I won't ask for hands, but did anybody here lose a marriage because they stopped communicating? You stopped working on that relationship. You let it go. You know, you went to the job and the kids, and 20 years later when the kids left the house, it's like, and who are you? Bunches of marriages break up at that point. Because they weren't into each other, they were just into all the other stuff. If you miss too many days, you'll lose it. Relationships will die. Is eating spiritual food once a week enough to maintain spiritual life? No, going to church isn't enough. You have to learn to feed yourself at home. Amen? Stay connected day by day by day by day. The only defense against evil is the indwelling of Christ in the heart through faith in his righteousness. Fight the fight of faith. Unless we become vitally connected with God, we can never resist the unhallowed effects of self-love, self-indulgence, and temptation to sin. We may leave off many bad habits. For a time we may part company with Satan, but without a vital connection with God, through the surrender of ourselves to him moment by moment, we shall be overcome. Without a personal acquaintance with Christ and a continual communion, we are at the mercy of the enemy and shall do his bidding in the end. So our weapons, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and stay connected, not good if detached. Number three, prayer, continual conversational communion with Jesus. What does Paul say? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The importance of having our whole day become an ongoing conversation with God. Not just prayer in the morning, but letting prayer be an abiding daily reality. Enoch walked with God. Stay connected. Pray constantly. Keep your eyes fixed. Satan cannot bear to have his powerful rival appealed to. At the sound of fervent prayer, the hosts of darkness tremble. Fearing their captive may escape, they form a wall around him. But if in his distress and helplessness the sinner looks to Jesus, he got to look up. Our compassionate Redeemer listens to the earnest, persevering prayer of faith and sends to his deliverance a reinforcement of angels who excel in strength. And when these angels, all powerful, clothed with the armory of heaven, come to the help of the fainting, pursued soul, the angels of darkness fall back, well knowing that their battle is lost. Satan comes and he's going to take you away, and God says to Gabriel, get a bunch of angels and get down there and help that person. And when those angels show up, those evil angels go, dudes, man, we're in the wrong place. Who had this stupid idea to come here? We're out of here. Right? The one who is infinitely more powerful has to come to defeat the one who is exponentially more powerful than us. November 1, I believe it was 1974. However, Lee and I have talked about whether it was 74 or 75. But November 1 is uh, what day? The day after October 31, which is Halloween. I was at Pacific Union College then, as was Lee, and Maury was the pastor. On November 1, Lee came into the kitchen and he said his dad was excited, energized, exuberant, had a big grin. And if any of you knew Maury, he was not the exuberant type. He was very demure. But he was not quiet that morning. Lee said, what happened to you? He said, I had the greatest experience last night, Halloween. Well, the backstory is that about midnight, a girl from one of the dorms whose parents had been involved in the occult left the dorm, 
walked across the main street in front of campus into a cornfield. There was a cornfield there then. And knelt down and asked Satan to come and take possession of her. And he obliged. There was a young man from the boys' dorm who had the dean's permission to go for a five-mile run. Now, if you've been around Pacific Union College, it's all up and down hills. So I'm sure he was pretty tired at the end of five miles, you know, clipping it around midnight. And as he went by that cornfield, this girl came raging out of the cornfield, completely possessed. Scared that young man, gave him new energy. He ran to the dorm, got the dean. The dean got the girl's dean and the roommate. And they went and found the girl. And of course, what do you do when you have a demon-possessed person? You call the pastor. We pastors love those calls. <laughs> Let me tell you something. We don't say, oh yeah, let's go meet the devil. You know, no way. It's like, who can come and help me? I need someone who's even a better prayer than I am. And Maury's attitude was, oh no. This is not what I want to do in the middle of the night. Meet some raging, screaming, demon-possessed girl. But he says, I went down. And by the way, if you'll go listen to his 1888 series in 1988 at Soquel, he tells the details of this story. So if you want to get the details, go get it there. But all he said to Lee that morning was, I got to see the great controversy in miniature right before my eyes. I got to see Jesus and Satan go head to head and Jesus still wins. It is a battle. But there is a promise of victory. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the new heart. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress, which he holds in a revolted world. I want to be a piece of heavenly territory. Amen? Behind enemy lines. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Satan is mighty. Correct? He is a tyrant. Can we be rescued? Thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. I will contend with those who contend with you and I'll save your children. This is usually about saving our children when we bring this up. But notice, I'll contend him that contends with you. He'll rescue us from the mighty. And he'll rescue our children. Don't just go for the children. You need it too. Amen? Amen? This is war. The battle is real. It rages all around us. There's always more going on than meets the eye. One final illustration. Have you ever, those of you who have been married longer than five minutes, have you ever had a discussion where there was a little bonfire between you? You know, there was a little conflict, just a little one. Just takes a glass of water to put it out, you know? And you're just, you're just going to come together and you're going to talk this little conflict through and it'll be no problem at all. And while you're trying to talk about this nonsense little issue, it's like somebody poured gasoline on the fire. And all of a sudden it is just a raging fire and you're at each other, and there's no hope in sight, and it's all of a sudden become a huge issue. I was reading a book by one of my favorite authors who suggested when you see that happening, it's not just the two of you anymore. Satan is back there pouring gasoline on the fire saying, I'm not here. That's just you guys. You've got to work it out. And what this author suggested was, when that bonfire erupts, it's time to say to the other one, dear honey, let's stop this right now and order the third party out of the room and invite the Holy Spirit in, and then let's go back to discussing it. You know, I read that, and that made really good sense. So the next time we got into it, and yes, we have, yeah. 40 years, you have at least a couple of conflicts. I remembered what I read in the book. That I needed to 
in the middle of that raging conflict, say, Marilyn, let's just pause a moment and order the third party out of the room. And you know when I thought of that, do you know what my little brain said? You can handle this. You don't need to, you know, this is just you. There's nothing more going on here than meets the eye. And I had this raging struggle to bring myself to the point of being willing to say, Marilyn, I think we need to order the third party out of the room. That, I, was, I was surprised that it was hard to admit I wasn't the problem. Now, I think she's the problem, right? She thinks I'm the problem. But the one thing we don't want to admit is that there's a bigger problem than us because we want to fix it. And I actually did finally bring myself to humble myself enough before myself <laughs> to say, Marilyn, and, and, and it worked. It worked. It absolutely worked. And I've had to do it again, and I've failed several other times to do it at all. It's amazing, the struggle, when it's such a simple thing. There's always more going on than meet the eye. Order the third party out of the room. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's never just about you and me. There's always the third party. And we can order him out in the name of Jesus. We can invite Jesus in. And it's amazing how the bonfire gets put out. It's not about flesh and blood. It's not about me and my sins. It's about seeking Jesus daily, connecting with him, working the three legs of the stool, Bible prayer and share, Satan's greatest fear is that we'll do just that. And when we do, he knows he's got to stop us at all costs. This is war. The biggest battle you'll ever undertake in your Christian life is the choice to daily get up and spend time with Jesus. We must push through in seeking Jesus. And Jesus will come through in transforming our hearts and behavior. We have a work to do. We have a battle to fight. We have a war to rage. But it's the good fight of faith. It's the work of seeking relationship of trusting in Jesus. The one thing God cannot do for us is to seek himself in relationship for us. But that's the one thing we can do. Bible, prayer, and share. The one thing we cannot do is change our behavior at the heart level. And that's the one thing he can do. So, folks, we need to let God do what God can do, and we need to stick with what we're supposed to do. We need to fight the battle where the battle is, not where the battle isn't. We need to remember it's not about what you do. It's about who you know, and who you know will transform what you do. Say that with me. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know, and who you know will transform what you do. Jesus we live in a battle. Let us never forget it for a moment. There's never a ceasefire. There's never a, uh, a truce. Satan will never give up trying to take us out. And we recognize that when we choose to lay down the battle of behavior and pick up the battle of relationship, we are putting a target on our chest and Satan is going to let all hell break loose at us. May we persevere in what you have given us to do and that is to seek relationship of trust with you trusting that you can handle principalities and powers. You are infinitely more powerful than the one who is exponentially more powerful than us. And may we sit at your feet, keep our eyes on you, and count on you and your promise of victory, we pray in your name. Amen.